On Capitol Hill, Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown-Jackson fields questions from senators about detainees at Guantanamo Bay, her sentences for those convicted of child sexual abuse, and the legal doctrine that requires respect for precedent already set by law. This is Tuesday, March 22nd. You're listening to All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, a federal public defender talks about what it was like to have Jackson work for him. A recent WBR investigation found Boston police purchased surveillance equipment without city approval. Today, police defended the program as some counselors called for the secrecy to end. The work of our city should not be um, conducted behind closed doors or without the approval of the voices of the people. Also, most countries in the U.N. are raising alarms about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So why is it so hard to hold Russia to account at the world body? It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown-Jackson is undergoing her second day of hearings on Capitol Hill. If confirmed, she would be the first black female justice and the third black justice after Thurgood Marshall and Clarence Thomas. But first, Jackson has to get through senators' questions. And as NPR's Domenico Montanaro reports, she's taking a less-is-more approach. For the most part, Jackson has been following a tried-and-true playbook for judicial nominees, say little to nothing controversial. That's not to say that Republicans haven't tried to pick at the federal judge's record, particularly when it comes to sentencing. They accuse her of having been light on sentencing in child pornography cases in particular. Jackson defended her decisions this way. I looked at the law and the facts. I made sure that the victims, um, the children's, perspectives were represented, and I also imposed prison terms. The hearings are expected to continue through most of Wednesday. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. Russia is now using long-range shelling from naval ships in its ongoing assault on the key Ukrainian port city of Mariupol. That's according to a senior U.S. defense official. NPR's Greg Myrie reports the attacks signal a new approach to Russia's broader invasion of Ukraine. The U.S. official says Russia has as many as seven ships off the coast of Mariupol, and several began shelling the city in the past day. Russian ground troops are fighting inside the city, but are continuing to meet tough resistance from the Ukrainians. Russia's use of naval forces comes as it increases long-range artillery fire throughout Ukraine and also reflects Russia's difficulty of advancing on the ground. If Russia does take Mariupol, it would then control most of the territory stretching from the Donbass region in the east to Crimea in the south. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. The White House says it is working with Western allies to prepare new sanctions against Russia and to enforce the existing ones. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan spoke today at a press briefing. This war will not end easily or rapidly. For the past few months, the West has been united. The president is traveling to Europe to ensure we stay united. Biden will head to Poland, where a refugee crisis is unfolding. First, he stops in Brussels to meet with NATO leaders. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki is no longer accompanying Biden on that trip. Today, she tested positive for the coronavirus. The president tested negative. It's the second international trip Psaki has had to back out of for the same reason. She tested positive last fall ahead of Biden's trip to the G20 summit in Rome. You're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston City Councilors today questioned Boston police about the department's use of a secret pot of money to purchase controversial surveillance equipment. The hearing follows a WBUR and ProPublica investigation that found police tapped civil asset forfeiture funds to buy the technology in 2019. WBUR's Shannon Dooling reports. Councillors focused their inquiry on how Boston police spent civil forfeiture dollars, funds comprised of cash and assets seized in connection with suspected crimes. Fatima Ahmed is executive director of the Muslim Justice League. In her testimony, Ahmad said the civil forfeiture system is ripe for abuse. People should be concerned about the fact that it is law enforcement seizing the assets and then law enforcement spending those assets. Boston police said they report some spending to the federal government, but counselors asked for additional documentation. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Shannon Dooling. Research by advocates and academicians show landlords are pursuing more evictions against people of color than whites in Massachusetts. The study looked at the year after the state's pandemic eviction moratorium ended. That was the fall of 2020. It found that in 16 cities, eviction rates are one and a half times higher in neighborhoods primarily home to people of color. A study author says the findings show racial disparities in evictions are a statewide problem. A brush fire on a military munitions training range in Central Mass is under control. Department of Conservation and Recreation Chief Fire Warden Dave Salino says the fire started yesterday afternoon at Devon's. He says the firefighters continued to fight it today and had to set what are called backfires to contain it. You actually contain the fire by actually burning the fuel out in front of it. The reason that they did that, it's really an indirect tactic, and it was really important that we use that tactic here in Devons because of unexploded ordnance. Salino says the types of fires occur in Devons because of the type of live gunfire training the military conducts. The fire did not threaten any homes or buildings. In sports, Red Sox are taking on the Tampa Bay Rays in spring training this afternoon. Sox right now lead 4-2 in the ninth inning. In the forecast, look for clear skies continuing overnight. Tonight should be a nice night down around 32 degrees. Then for tomorrow, sunshine, early clouds later on. Not quite as warm as today as Ben should be topping out in the mid-40s. 48 degrees now in Boston at 4.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance, protecting small businesses with specialized coverages for commercial vehicles. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Tbilisi, Georgia, which has an uncomfortable number of things in common with Ukraine. Neither belongs to NATO, neither belongs to the EU. Both are former Soviet republics and both have a history of being invaded by Russia. So. What are the stakes here in Georgia as war devastates Ukraine? And what's the U.S. role in helping assure that Georgia's history of Russian invasion is not repeated? Those are questions we're going to put to our next guest just behind these big gates. We have just pulled up to the U.S. Embassy here in Tbilisi. Let's go in and meet the ambassador. Inside, we get settled in the embassy's media room, where U.S. Ambassador to Georgia Kelly Degnan has been holding Zoom meetings during the pandemic, and we dive in. What are the stakes for Georgia? Um, and for Americans who don't know much about Georgia, what should, what should we know? Georgians are watching what's happening in Ukraine with, I would say, a particular pain and perspective. They, 14 years ago, were invaded themselves by Russia, 
there's a long history in Georgia of Russian invasions going back centuries, but this one in 2008 is still very raw for many Georgians today. This is also a moment of opportunity for Georgia. I think um, Sun Tzu said, out of chaos come opportunities. And here is an opportunity for this deeply polarized country to unite, to unite around the principles that and, and shared values that uh, Georgia has loved for um, f- for centuries. Let me pick up on something you just said. You just described this as a deeply polarized country. Um, and without getting too into the weeds of Georgian politics, um, there is at the moment this, I think fair to call it, strange situation where Georgia is threatening to sue its own president um, for her support for Ukraine. What's going on? President Zurabishvili has uh, represented this country very well. She has articulated the Georgian people's support for Ukrainians, for what they're going through, for sovereignty, for territorial integrity, both on the international scene. um, She's flown to various European capitals to say, look, we Georgians, we stand with Europe and the world That's for right. Ukraine. And domestically, where I think there are a variety of feelings here, both the concern of becoming a target of Russian retaliation or aggression, as well as that fierce uh, commitment to freedom and watching the courage of the Ukrainian people. So why does the government, by which I mean the ruling party and the prime minister, why do they want to sue her? Here is, again, a moment where they can be coming together, where they need to be coming together. And that was the president's message in her speech on uh, March 14th to Parliament. Only Russia benefits when Georgians are divided. And that has been her strong message. She has earnestly represented this country, as I said, domestically and internationally, calling on all of the Georgian people and certainly their political leadership to come together. And I hope her message will be heard. Yeah. I I don't want to dwell on divisions, um, but I am trying to understand and trying to help Americans listening understand what's going on here. There's this situation where the president and the prime minister are at odds over quite how firmly uh, Georgia should stand with Ukraine. Is that fair to say? Yes. Okay. I've also noticed another few things. Just, you know, in the in the few days that we have been here, we've been hearing about uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine wanting to address parliament here, and Georgia said no. Um, Georgian volunteers wanting to go help fight in Ukraine, help defend Ukraine, and their plane was not allowed to take off. What is informing? I know you don't speak for the, the prime minister or the ruling party here in Georgia, but how do you understand these divisions in society here? Georgia has spoken out quite forcefully in international fora, like the UN, OSCE, Council of Europe, uh, in support of, uh, of Ukraine, against the Russian aggression. So they are speaking out uh, and standing with the United States and the West uh, at this critical time. There's a balancing that I think we're seeing the government do, which is to uh, ensure that Georgia doesn't attract Russia's retaliation. It's their responsibility as the the government, and they are representing the views of a portion of the population. So Georgia is taking the steps that it can, and we have been encouraging the government to look for the ways that Georgia can show its support for Ukraine and show its support for the fundamental security principles that are at stake. The balancing act that you described, is that in a nutshell that if Georgia stands too firmly with Ukraine or tilts too far toward the West, toward the EU, 
it will risk antagonizing Russia, risk putting itself in danger yet again. No one wants Georgia to be the next target. Uh, and I, I think um, what we are seeing is balancing. At the same time, this government put forward an early application for European Union membership. So by submitting that application, Georgia has started on uh, taking a very important step forward on its path toward European Union membership. There's a great deal of work to be done, a lot of reforms, um, a lot of hard work, but this is the moment, again, as President Zurabashvili said, this is the moment when the country can come together and really walk down that path toward European Atlantic integration together. To Zoom out from Georgia. Are you in contact with your colleague in Moscow, U.S. Ambassador John Sullivan? Uh, not regularly. Um, we are in contact with his his team. Yeah. We are in contact with our colleagues in uh, at, from Embassy Kiev. We're supporting. I'm asking because of these reports uh, that he has just been warned that the relationship is about to be severed. That's one of the reasons I'm not in regular contact. He's got his hands full with that, managing that relationship, that very important relationship between the United States and Russia. Um, but we are supporting both Embassy Moscow and Embassy Kiev in important ways. For instance, we're taking on a lot of their consular affairs work to make sure that American citizens continue to get the support that they need um, overseas. Uh, we're looking for other ways that we can support those missions, um, uh, including supporting sometimes the Ukrainian colleagues that used to work at Embassy Kiev um, and that right now are relocated maybe to Tbilisi. How would it impact your work if the diplomatic relationship between Moscow and Washington were severed? Georgia doesn't have diplomatic relations with Russia, so there is uh, not formal relations here. Uh, so our, our connection is probably less so than in other countries. I think the main thing is continuing our work to help Georgia uh, find new partners and markets so that they can reduce their reliance on a country that has over the centuries never come through for Georgia at its moments of need. Georgians know Russians very well. Ambassador, thank you. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to have you here in Georgia. You're here in time for the 30th anniversary of our diplomatic relations. The United States is very, very proud of what we've been able to do together with Georgia over the last 20 years, and we're very excited about what's to come in the coming years. Well, happy anniversary. Thank, Thank you, you so for taking much. the time. And now a story that might get a rise out of you. Researchers in Italy have created a pizza dough without yeast, and they swear it tastes just as good as the regular stuff. Here's NPR's Ari Daniel. Ernesto Di Maio is severely allergic to the yeast in leavened foods. I have to go somewhere and hide because I will be fully covered with bumps and bubbles on the whole body. It's really brutal. Di Maio is a materials scientist at the University of Naples, Federico II, and he's had to swear off bread and pizza, which can make outings in Italy awkward. People would say, don't you like pizza? Why are you having pasta? And that's strange. So Di Maio cooked up a project to make pizza dough that still rises, but without yeast. 
He pulled in a couple of grad students and another colleague, chemical engineer Rosanna Pasquino, who studies how materials flow and spread out. So pizza is a funny material because it flows, but it's, it has to be also like a rubber. It has to be elastic enough when it's cooked to be perfect when you eat it. Yeast causes the dough to rise by burping carbon dioxide, creating air bubbles that get trapped by the dough, puffing it up. But the challenge was to get that telltale rise without yeast. The team had on hand a really small autoclave, a kind of pressurized oven, where they took their yeast-free dough and at the exact right time, temperature, and pressure flooded it with gas, kind of like how you'd carbonate soda. And then by gradually releasing the pressure and adding heat, the bubbles grew and the dough rose as it baked. The result. Really small pizzas. The size of half a penny, says Ernest DiMaio. And the taste. It was exactly like the yeast pizza. The results are published in today's issue of the journal Physics of Fluids. But not everyone's convinced. Francisco Migoya is the head chef for Modernist Cuisine, a collection of chefs, scientists, and artists focused on culinary innovation. He wasn't involved in the study. Yeast does so many things to dough besides fermentation, like the flavors that you find, the complexity of aromas. You know, I'd really need to taste this to make sure that what you guys are saying has any sort of objective truth to it. That may well be in the cards. The next step for the Italian research team is to get a bigger autoclave and make a 10-inch pizza. Ari Daniel, NPR News. Gas prices these days are helping drive high demand for electric vehicles, and General Motors has said it will go all electric by 2035. But right now, the global supply chain means you might have to get in line for an EV. A conversation with the president of GM tomorrow on Morning Edition. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stocks ended the day on the plus side. The Dow rose three quarters of a percent, 254 points to close at 34,807. S&P pulled in even more, about one and a tenth percent to finish at 45.12. The Nasdaq climbed about two percent to end the day at 14,109. A Bostonian is now leading the largest workers union in America. Sean O'Brien was sworn in today as general president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. He previously led Teamsters Local 25 in Charlestown. O'Brien says his priorities include negotiating a strong contract with UPS and leading efforts to organize employees at Amazon. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org. And Synovian, advancing therapies for serious central nervous system conditions. Through science, Sonovian can help lead the way to a healthier world. More at Sonovian.com. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. 
This traffic note, there are lane closures on Route 16 westbound over the Mystic River in Medford today. The state's Department of Transportation is making the emergency repairs on the bridge deck. The road is expected to be fully reopened tomorrow morning at 5 o'clock. Pretty nice out there and should have a lovely night tonight. Clear skies continuing, chilly down in the low 30s. And for tomorrow, some sunshine in the morning, increasing clouds as the day continues, should top out in the mid-40s. 48 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is Enterprise AI. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Watching UN Security Council meetings on Ukraine can be jarring. As countries raise alarms about Russia's bombardment of Ukraine, Russia's ambassador dismisses every allegation as fake news. Russia is a permanent Security Council member, so it's hard to hold it to account there, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. The U.S. ambassador to the United Nations puts it bluntly. Linda Thomas-Greenfield told reporters on her way into one recent meeting that Russia is using its position on the Security Council to launder lies. And these lies are designed for one purpose and one purpose alone, deflect responsibility for Russia's war of choice and the humanitarian catastrophe it has caused. Russia has been trying to head off a Security Council resolution demanding humanitarian access to Ukraine by proposing its own draft. Albania's ambassador said Russia should get into the Guinness Book of World Records for hypocrisy. Russia has also made claims denied by U.N. officials about biological weapons programs in Ukraine. Thomas Greenfield calls that a false flag. Russia has repeatedly, repeatedly accused other countries of the very violations it plans to perpetrate. The Security Council is supposed to be the guardian of international peace and security, says Lou Charbonneau of Human Rights Watch. But whenever it involves the permanent members, it's basically hamstrung. Throughout the Cold War, he says, the Security Council was deadlocked because the superpowers could veto anything. This moment may be the same, but Charbonneau says U.N. aid agencies are helping Ukrainians uprooted by war, and U.N. human rights officials are gathering evidence of war crimes. So hopefully there will eventually be proper accountability, but it's not going to come from the U.N. Security Council. The U.N. Security Council provide some good drama, a bit of nasty back and forth, but uh, it's not the substance. The substance is going to come from elsewhere. Eventually, the U.N. Security Council could play a role if Russia and Ukraine reach a negotiated settlement, says Richard Gowan of the International Crisis Group. Then it may be useful to have the council put its stamp on the agreement. And you can imagine a situation where you have a ceasefire in Ukraine or a disengagement of forces and you need some sort of UN peace observer mission to confirm that Russia is pulling back. Speaking via Skype, Gowan says the UN will also have to deal with the global consequences of this war. Ukraine and Russia supply much of the world's wheat and the developing world is worried about that. The UN's job 
is partially to help weak states navigate what is going to be a major global economic crisis just after the crisis that was sparked by COVID. And so the UN's biggest contribution here may be at the global scale rather than actually mediating between Russia and Ukraine. For now, the UN Security Council continues to function in other areas. It recently renewed the mandate for the UN mission for Afghanistan, for instance. But as the war in Ukraine drags on, Gowan says, it may be harder for Security Council diplomats to work together. And that could mean more fallout for the rest of the world. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Ohio's Republican Senate primary is shaping up as a fight between candidates touting their pro-Donald Trump credentials. In recent days, the race for the open seat has gained in both intensity and animosity. NPR's Don Gagne reports. Watch the local news or March Madness basketball in Ohio these days, and you're also going to get lots of TV ads with U.S. Senate candidates and one other recurring character, Donald J. Trump. He's everywhere, even as he's endorsed no one. Pro-God, pro-gun, pro-Trump. That's from former state treasurer Josh Mandel. This one from former state GOP chair Jane Timken. There are pretenders in the Senate race. Jane Timken is the real Trump conservative. And from investment banker Mike Gibbons, who has outspent his opponents on ads. Trump and Gibbons are businessmen with a backbone. Trump saved our economy before. Gibbons knows how to do it again. The primary campaign right now is in the middle of a 10-day stretch with three debates. Friday was the first in suburban Columbus. Five candidates sat side-by-side on stage. Timken made her opening pitch. As most parents know, when something threatens your children, you fight. And I'm a mom on a mission, ready to take our country back. Josh Mandel used his opening remarks to liken himself to Trump as tough on China. He was teeing up an attack on the candidate to his right, businessman Mike Gibbons. And people like Mike Gibbons, who had all these companies here in America and then made money selling them to China. Mandel chose his target for one reason. Latest polls put Gibbons ahead. The first question of the debate was about Ukraine. All blame President Biden for being weak and giving Putin an opportunity to invade. Most supported military and financial aid of some kind, but candidate J.D. Vance, author of the book Hillbilly Elegy, stood out from the pack with this. What happened over there is very sad, but ladies and gentlemen, it cannot be said enough. We have got our own problems. It was during discussion of Ukraine that Mandel resumed his attack on Gibbons' business history, leading to an angry exchange that bordered on the physical. You've never been in the I private sector in your entire life. All right, gentlemen. I've worked, sir. Josh. Watch. Two tours in Iraq. Don't tell me I haven't worked. Mandel, who was 44, jumped up and went nose to nose, chest to chest with the 69-year-old Gibbons. It was both tense and awkward. Two tours in Iraq. Don't tell me I haven't worked. You back off. The moment went viral. Now to last night and another debate. The moderator opened by asking Mandel and Gibbons about their earlier clash. Neither expressed regrets. The evening proceeded calmly this time. At one point, the five candidates were asked for a show of hands. The topic was the 2020 election. Do you think that for the betterment of the Republican Party, it's time for Donald Trump to stop talking about the 2020 election and move on? 
Only one candidate raised his hand, State Senator Matt Dolan. In Ohio, we have very secure elections. There has been two audits done and it showed there are no problems. Dolan is currently in single digits in polls. At the first of these debates, I met Dolan supporter Gordon Phillips, a retired career Air Force veteran. He's a loyal Republican, but January 6th was a turning point for him. He says the party does need to move beyond Trump. But I'm looking for a man who can, with integrity, who can stand up and speak truth and uh, be responsible and accountable for the decisions he makes. And were you a Trump voter? I was a Trump voter twice. Still, Phillips is in a small minority within the GOP. Far more common are voters like Kathy Deal, who works at a local church. She's undecided in the Senate race and wishes Trump would weigh in. Trump had not given an endorsement. No, yet. he's not. That would that would definitely seal it for sure. If he were in to yes, endorse, it would seal it for um, you. Even with polls showing Mike Gibbons in the lead, more than a third of GOP voters are still undecided. The primary is May 3rd, but that could be delayed due to a legal battle over redistricting. Whoever gets the Republican nomination will likely be the favorite in November in a state Trump won twice easily. Don Gagne, NBR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. 48 degrees now, a beautiful afternoon, should be a nice evening. And then clear skies overnight tonight, falling to just about freezing. Strong winds overnight. Tomorrow, the winds back off, but clouds should move in through the day after a sunny start, about 46 degrees for a high. Thursday, bring along the umbrella and get ready to use it. Should be rainy, windy, with highs about 48 degrees. Again, 48 degrees right now at 430. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, sponsor of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank, mathworks.com slash GBFB. Point 32 Health Companies, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, and Tufts Health Plan, a wide range of benefits to meet the needs of every member through employer, individual, and family coverage. And Bicon Dental Implants, offering patients a same-day solution for missing teeth, often avoiding surgical bone grafting procedures. 617-524-3900. Close the airspace. Stop the bombing. A no-fly zone would mean the beginning of World War III. I'm sick and tired of being worried about what Putin's going to do. We're the most powerful nation on the planet big rhetoric around three simple words, but what would a no-fly zone really mean in the skies over Ukraine? That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Confirmation hearings for President Biden's nominee to fill the upcoming vacancy on the Supreme Court continued today on Capitol Hill. Speaking before the Senate Judiciary Committee, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson defended her record on the bench and pledged to rule from a position of neutrality if confirmed to the high court. I am committed to serving as an even-handed Supreme Court justice if I'm confirmed by this body. And I have a record over the past decade that's precisely how I've treated all of my cases. 
Republicans on the committee questioned Jackson about her past rulings on criminal matters, suggesting that she's been too lenient in sentencing. Democrats pushed back, arguing that Jackson is not anti-law enforcement or soft on crime. New York City is taking another step toward easing coronavirus mandates. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports starting next month, the city is planning to make facial coverings optional for daycares and preschools. Mayor Eric Adams says New York City is currently a low-risk environment for COVID, even after the city made masks optional for K-12 students two weeks ago. He said if positivity rates remain low, masks will become optional for children under five in daycares and preschools starting April 4th. Some New York parents had criticized ending the mandate, while many others, the parents of toddlers, had complained about keeping masks on their kids. Adams said the city will follow the science. While New York's positivity rate is relatively low, it has crept up slightly this week, with the new BA2 variant detected in growing numbers. Quill Lawrence, NPR News, New York. At the close on Wall Street, the Dow was up 254 points. This is NPR News in Washington. Drugmaker Pfizer has reached a deal with UNICEF to provide nearly 100 low- and middle-income countries with its antiviral pills for treating COVID-19. NPR's Nareet Eisenman has more. The treatment is called Paxlovid, and most of the early supply produced by Pfizer had been snapped up by wealthy countries. Under this new arrangement, beginning this April, Pfizer will sell up to 4 million courses to UNICEF at a tiered price, with the company charging an undisclosed, quote, not-for-profit price for courses purchased for low- and lower-middle-income countries, and a higher price for courses obtained for upper-middle-income countries. Four months ago, Pfizer also signed a voluntary licensing agreement with another United Nations-based organization that will allow generic manufacturers to produce their versions of Paxlovid. But that effort is expected to take longer to ramp up. Nareet Eisenman, NPR News. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki has tested positive for the coronavirus. In a tweet, Psaki said she took a test in preparation for President Biden's trip to Europe this week, and it came back positive. She also said she had two socially distant meetings with Biden this week, but he's not considered a close contact under federal health guidelines. This is the second time in less than six months that Psaki has tested positive for the coronavirus. Stocks traded higher on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 254 points, the Nasdaq up 270. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu wants to avoid having the state put Boston schools under receivership. WBUR's Matt Ledden reports the mayor expressed her opposition to the idea at a meeting today of the State Board of Elementary and Secondary Education. The prospect of receivership appears to be rising. Last week, the state said it will conduct a review of Boston Public Schools, or BPS, It's to address persistent challenges the state has identified, like inadequate special education services and questions about the accuracy of graduation data. Mayor Wu says the city is working on changes, and she's focused on bringing in a new superintendent. I'm so excited to work with the search committee and the school committee and the city council as we identify a long-lasting partner in leadership for BPS. It is with all this in mind that I firmly oppose receivership. Wu says the city is prepared to make unprecedented budget commitments to student achievement. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Matt Ludden. Efforts to suspend the state's gasoline tax are expected to get another look this week as gas prices remain near record highs. Earlier this month, the Massachusetts House rejected an effort to put a hold on collection of the tax. 
Thursday, the Senate will consider an amendment to a spending bill that would temporarily lift the 24 cent per gallon tax until Labor Day. Governor Charlie Baker has indicated he prefers that lawmakers approve other tax cuts rather than lift the gasoline tax. Governor Baker says he intends to prioritize the problems of the workforce in the final months of his term. The governor told the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce today his administration is considering what he calls unusual ways to improve worker and resident retention. He says the goal is to make it easier for people to find work and for businesses to find employees. Baker also said the state must address the high cost of living. There are lane closures on Route 16 westbound over the Mystic River in Medford today. The state's Department of Transportation is making emergency repairs on the bridge deck. The road is expected to fully reopen tomorrow morning at 5. Minor delays are reported on Route 16 in that part of Medford now. It's 436. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios designed to help create a healthy planet and just society. Zevin.com slash WBUR. 48 degrees now in the Boston area. Nice sunny skies, mainly clear this afternoon and the evening. Overnight tonight, though, should be should, should stay clear. In fact, winds picking up, temperatures falling to the low 30s. Tomorrow, some bright skies, but not for long. Clouds thicken as the day progresses, about 46 degrees tops. Thursday, lots of rain. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help create a comprehensive plan for a client's full financial picture. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A. IKU.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson sat before senators today for the second day of hearings on her nomination to the Supreme Court. If confirmed, Jackson would be the first justice to have served as a federal public defender. Federal public defenders don't get to pick their clients, they have to represent uh, whoever comes in, and it's a service. You are standing up for the constitutional value of representation. Jackson held that job from 2005 to 2007, and A.J. Kramer was her supervisor. He's the federal public defender for the District of Columbia, and he joins me now. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's especially a pleasure to be uh, talking about Judge Jackson's nomination. Mr. Kramer, briefly, what can you tell us about the types of cases that Jackson took while she was working in your office? Well, she worked on a wide variety of cases. Her primary assignment was she was an appeals lawyer. We have a trial division and an appellate division, and she worked in the appellate division almost exclusively. Um, So she was doing appeals where someone had been already convicted or sentenced. And she also worked on some of the, as you've heard in the hearings, the Guantanamo habeas cases that our office had at the time. What more can you tell us about those cases and how they may be relevant to her nomination? So the Supreme Court had held that the Guantanamo detainees had a right to petition in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia for habeas corpus uh, to challenge their detention. It was a brand new area of law. Nobody, we didn't really know what we were doing. Somebody 
extremely talented in both uh, legal thinking and legal writing, had to work on the cases, and Judge Jackson was the logical choice. Uh, and the main thing I think, and I think she made it clear, but I'm not sure everybody understood. In the public defender's office, we take every case that comes in that's assigned to the office, and she was assigned the Guantanamo cases. So it's not something she actively sought out. As we mentioned, if confirmed, Judge Jackson would become the first Supreme Court justice with experience as a federal public defender, as well as the first since Justice Thurgood Marshall with significant experience representing criminal defendants. Why is it so rare to see former public defenders on the Supreme Court? I think because mistakenly people impute that the public defender shares the views of their clients somehow, or criminal defense lawyers in general do. Um, it's advocating for a client who's in very, un- especially public defenders who are in very un- come from very unfortunate circumstances and find themselves in one of the most difficult times of their lives. And I think that that's a valuable experience that's all too often not people are not put on the bench uh, because. There's this, as I said, viewpoint that you're somehow soft on crime or somehow agree with what they've uh, done. And then I guess that leads to a natural question of how might Judge Jackson's experience as a public defender shape her decisions if she is indeed confirmed as a Supreme Court justice by the Senate? I think, as she expressed it, it gave her uh, an invaluable understanding that the person is very scared Um, They're facing a system that's overwhelming and that they need to be informed all along the way of what's going on and why it's going on. And I think that she said that's an invaluable uh, experience that she took from the job, that that perspective is all too rare on the bench and obviously on the Supreme Court. That is A.J. Kramer, the federal public defender for the District of Columbia and the former supervisor of Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown-Jackson. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. More than three million Ukrainians have fled their country since the Russian invasion began. Most of them are in Europe. Some are trying to join relatives here in the U.S. and are finding that it's a lot harder than they expected. NPR's Joel Rose reports. It's been 24 years since Elena Tiznovsky left Ukraine and moved to New York, but she still talks to her brother in Kyiv on the phone every day, and she's been watching the Russian invasion in horror. I am scared to read the news, and there is nothing I can do. The only thing that I can do is to help my sister-in-law and my brother's children to be safe. When the war broke out, Tiznovsky's sister-in-law fled Ukraine with her teenage kids. The plan was that they'd try to join Tiznovsky in the U.S. I'm the closest family. Uh, I have the means, ability, and strong willingness to help. Tiznovsky's relatives made it to Germany. Then the plan hit a snag. Tiznovsky's niece and nephew have U.S. visas, but their Ukrainian passports are expired. Tiznovsky's sister-in-law does have a passport, but she doesn't have a visa. And it could take her months to get one, if she's approved at all. The situation is is dire. It is dire. I think the United States should do something to help these people. Across the country, immigration lawyers say Ukrainian Americans are trying to bring relatives to join them in the U.S. and finding their paths blocked by a web of legal obstacles. Strict visa requirements, expired passports, missing documents, pandemic restrictions. 
Polish President Andrzej Duda says he raised the issue with Vice President Kamala Harris during her recent visit. Here's Duda speaking through an interpreter. I asked to uh, speed up and simplify the procedures for such people, to give the opportunity to these people to be reunited with their families, to help them to survive this time. So we are The Biden administration's position is that most of these refugees want to stay in Europe, but it has pledged to help wherever they are. Here's Biden himself earlier this month. We will send money and food and aid to save the Ukrainian people. And I will welcome Ukrainian refugees. We should welcome them here with open arms if they need access. But in reality, getting to the U.S. through the formal refugee process would take years. For Ukrainians who do have relatives here, it would be quicker to get a visa to come as an immigrant or a temporary visitor. And even then, there are significant barriers. People were caught off guard. Patricia Gannon is an immigration lawyer with the firm Greenspoon Martyr in New York. She's advising the Tisnovskys and other families in similar positions. It wasn't like their clothes were packed. It wasn't like their passports were ready in hand. It wasn't like, hey, in three months we're going to get bombed, so I better go to the U.S. Embassy now and get my visa. In order to get a tourist visa, you have to show that you're not planning to stay in the U.S. forever and that you have somewhere to go when the visa ends, whether it's Ukraine or elsewhere. That leaves Elena Tisnovsky's family scrambling to get documents out of Ukraine in the middle of a war. For now, her relatives are staying with strangers in Frankfurt. Right now, my family has a, a solution and accommodation, but what will happen in three months? What about six months or eight? What about a year? They're still trying to get a U.S. visa for Tisnovsky's sister-in-law, but Tisnovsky says they also have a backup plan in case that takes too long. She made a decision to uh, send the children to the United States to live with us, and then she would come back uh, to my brother in Ukraine to be with him. They hope it doesn't come to that, that the U.S. will live up to its rhetoric and let them in with open arms. But they also know that the war is forcing Ukrainians into difficult choices and leaving families scattered around the world. Joel Rose, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Today, Boston city councilors peppered Boston police officials with questions about the police department's $627,000 purchase of controversial surveillance equipment. Boston police tapped a hidden pot of money to buy the technology. WBUR's Shannon Dooling has more. Today's hearing focused on Boston Police's 2019 purchase of a cell site simulator, also known as a Stingray. The device the size of a suitcase tracks real-time cell phone use and location. Civil rights advocates say the warrantless use of the technology violates privacy laws. Counselor Julia Mejia demanded a hearing after she and other counselors said they weren't aware of the purchase until notified by WBUR. The work of our city should not be conducted behind closed doors or without the approval of the voices of the people. This era of secrecy has to end. An investigation by WBUR and ProPublica revealed Boston police used the proceeds of civil asset forfeiture to buy the cell site simulator. This money comes from cash seized in connection with suspected crimes, and it's spent largely at the discretion of police chiefs. Boston Police Superintendent Felipe Colon told counselors the device has saved lives, including suicidal individuals and victims of human trafficking. We do 
have strict policies or strict uh, guidelines as to when we deploy this uh, technology. Through some limited research, I've seen other cities and uh, it's used far more than we, than we do. However, BPD previously told WBUR that there were no guidelines for using the cell site simulator. When counselors asked about policies for deleting identifying cell phone information collected from bystanders who aren't being targeted during an investigation, Cologne admitted the department had none. He said they will formulate a policy. The committee also asked BPD for more data on forfeiture spending. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Shannon Dooling. And this note, WBUR's investigative team will discuss its investigation into Boston police spending on surveillance technology during an event on April 5th. It'll be in person at WBUR City Space and also online. To register for free tickets, go to the City Space page of WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Duke Science and Technology. Defying convention, embracing challenges, and racing towards solutions the world needs now. Because when collaboration leads, breakthroughs follow. Duke Science and Technology. Challenge accepted. Duke.edu. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed money at findmassmoney.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. Checking sports, Red Sox beat Tampa Bay in spring training play today, 4-2. to two. Sox are going to be honoring the life of Red Sox Hall of Famer Jerry Remy with a patch on players' uniforms this season. Team members will wear the patch for 161 of the 162 games. The only day they won't wear it is April 15th because that's when all the clubs wear number 42 to honor the league's first black player, Jackie Robinson. Jerry Remy passed away in October after several battles with cancer. And running back who visited with the Patriots yesterday has chosen to stay where he is. Uh, uh, Leonard Fournette of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers re-signed with Tom Brady's team today to a three-year deal. This is WBUR. It's 449. WBUR supporters include Uncommon Feasts Catering Culinary Events, now reserving fall and 2023 dates in Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Gather around. Let's feast and Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, helping transform your outdated, unused jewelry into fresh and wearable pieces for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. The news never sleeps, and we don't either. I'm Rupa Shanoi, WBUR's Morning Edition host. Our team is up all night, so we can tell you what happened while you were sleeping. Plus, we'll have interviews with local newsmakers and those hidden gems, the stories that bring a smile to your face. Join me weekdays for Morning Edition starting at 5 a.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Let's make mornings better. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Lady Hubbard's brand new collection of short stories takes place in an unnamed Southern majority black suburb in the 90s and early 2000s. It's designed like a diary of sorts for the community, with interconnecting events, people, and places as the years tick by. The adults fight for justice and financial security while grieving lost loved ones, as children grow up and become aware of the struggles they'll inherit. And as I started to read the book, it started to feel like something of a diary for me, too, since I related to so many of the people in Hubbard's book. A lot of the characters in the story and things like that are based on um, my experiences. Definitely my grandmother kept everything wrapped in plastic until company came to visit. The book, 
called The Last Suspicious Holdout, covers the breadth of African-American life in this community. Each story is set in a different year. I asked Hubbard why she structured it that way. I am very interested in people that keep going, that survive hardships and um, find a way to keep believing and working towards things getting better. And so I think I wanted to represent and show that in the book over time. And part of their transformation is, is emblematic of some of the transformations that the community as a whole is, is going through. You know, that resiliency that you're talking about there comes across again and again and again in this collection. Um, The resiliency of the Black community, much of which is born out of necessity. And it just strikes me that, you know, even though this collection begins 30 years ago, so many of the struggles that you touch on, they we are still seeing them today in real time. And it sounds like that may have been intentional for you. I think it was. It's pretty interesting how much the... um cultural landscape has changed since I started writing in terms of how people talk about them right now. For me, an underlying theme for them is probably during this period, um, the difficulty of expressing grief. I don't think people were talking very honestly about a lot of issues and there was a lot of obfuscation in terms of um, how certain things that were going on were represented. So. For me, it's almost like the, the quiet before a community reclaims its its voice. You mentioned grief, and that is something that uh, really stuck out to me as I was reading these stories. Um, perhaps my favorite story in your collection was False Cognates, where you hit on, I think, something that's a really familiar tension in the Black community, right, about education and a father who saw education as a privilege, a lifeline, a way to get that step up, and a brother who saw it as almost selling out. Right. Well, I definitely think that is a recurrent theme of of, <laughs> of that era. And it certainly is in these stories. Um, it was ex- very much exacerbated in uh, media representations. There was like this idea that Black identity had become bifurcated along class lines. And so the experiences of maybe upwardly mobile middle-class Blacks was totally divorced from the Black majority. Of course, that's an idea that presupposes that that structural racism no longer exists, which is not true. Um, But I I, I think that was a huge tension that uh, a lot of people were grappling with. You know, there is a common theme throughout these stories, this idea of family being both a support system as well as at times for some of the characters an obligation and perhaps even sometimes to the point of resentment of that obligation. I am so curious, um, why do you believe that is an important conversation to have, and particularly when it comes to this portrayal of Black families and Black characters? Well, because within the Black community, there's a lot of diversity. It's not a monolith. It's not any more monolithic than any other community. But it's what creates you. It's how you sort of respond and process and and deal with different ideas about what is the correct way to live. And there are a lot of conflicts in that. But it's it it becomes part of who you are. The other thing that loomed so large to me in this book is 
the way that you approach gender and relationships. Another story I really loved was uh, Houston and the Blinking What. And I'm thinking about when one of the characters, Stephanie, is thinking openly about the choices that men and women make when it comes to love and the fairy tale in which men, as you write, are judged by their actions and women by the quality of their belief. I'd, I'd just love to know more about how you thought about that. Yeah, I... I... I think that is the experience of of a lot of women in terms of heterosexual relationships and it's related to race because I think that the idea of manhood is very dependent on on how women behave in response to to men. So that story is really just about two women sort of dealing with maybe the ideas that they had about what they wanted from their relationships with men did not serve them to the point where they sort of become unsustainable. One of the characters says that she realized her husband had become a man she couldn't trust to do a simple task, which is is also a reference to um, fairy tales and folklore and stuff like that because uh, the idea of a man being given a task to do to achieve some kind of goal in a lot of those stories, the way the women are represented, their function is to sort of help the man to realize his own identity. And I think a lot of women probably are brought up to think that that is somehow empowering, as opposed to focusing a little bit more uh, specifically on uh, realizing their own identities. Another thing I wanted to ask you about is in some of these stories, I came away with feeling an element of almost hopelessness and futility, this idea that no matter what some of these characters did, no matter how hard they tried, they were unable to escape poverty or imprisonment or death. And I wonder, for you as a writer, was this in any way an exercise of frustration to get those feelings out on paper? Um, probably to a certain extent. I mean, I, I think there are a lot of, um, really painful things that black people have been through. There's also a lot of really beautiful things that I, I hope I express as well. Again, I think that pointing out how hard it is, is for me, ultimately it's, it's a celebration of sort of the resiliency and artistry of people because they keep going and keep trying to envision new futures. That's one of the lessons I take from my own history is uh, we, we wouldn't be here if we weren't capable of, you know, enormous acts of imaginative bravery and hope. That's what hope is. It's just, um, it's a lot of bravery. It's not just suffering and it is about sustaining despite all of that. Lady Hubbard, author of The Last Suspicious Holdout, thank you so much for talking with us and for sharing your beautiful collection of stories. I enjoy them so much. Oh, thank you so much. And and thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute working to develop new lung cancer therapies based on the discovery of the EGFR mutation. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash stories. From Subaru, introducing the 2022 Subaru Outback Wilderness with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com slash wilderness. 
from Aspiration, working to help people combat climate change with a credit card that lets them plant a tree with every purchase. One card, zero carbon footprint. Aspiration.com slash credit. Aspiration Financial, LLC. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is WBUR in Boston. Sunny and bright this afternoon and evening. Then overnight tonight should fall to about freezing clear skies. Strong winds overnight. For tomorrow, not quite as windy. Sunshine early, then clouds move in through the day. About 46 degrees for a high. Coming to WBUR City Space Wednesday, April 5th, Alice Waters, renowned chef and creator of the Farm to Table movement. You can get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Once again, look for... Uh, Clear skies overnight tonight, 48 degrees now in the Boston area at 459. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. On a scale of 1 to 10, how faithful would you say you are in terms of religion? U.S. Senators question Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson in a marathon hearing for the Supreme Court nominee that's still going on at this hour. A review of the questions and some of her answers coming up. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, as millions of people flee their homes in Ukraine, aid groups are looking to give cash assistance to people rather than donated food and clothing. A Missouri radio station is airing broadcasts funded by the Russian state. In a rare move, the National Association of Broadcasters has called for the station to cease airing state-sponsored programming. And 50 years ago, the Equal Rights Amendment seemed poised to deliver a legal victory to American women. It went sailing through the different state legislatures with unanimous votes, one after the other. But the ERA never became law. Our story coming up, it's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. On day two of Senate confirmation hearings, Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson rejected GOP suggestions that as a jurist, she'd been soft on child pornography defendants. She testified that she has fulfilled her duty to hold defendants accountable. Senator, the evidence in these cases are egregious. The evidence in these cases are among the worst that I have seen, and yet, as Congress directs, judges don't just calculate the guidelines and stop. Judges have to take into account the personal circumstances of the defendant because that's a requirement of Congress. Barring the unforeseen, the Democratic-controlled Senate is ultimately expected to approve the historic nomination of Jackson. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki has tested positive for the coronavirus again. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports she'll miss President Biden's trip to Europe. It's the second time that Saki has tested positive for the virus and also the second time she will miss an international trip because of it. She previously tested positive just ahead of Biden's trip to the G20 summit in Rome last fall. President Biden is set to depart for Brussels on Wednesday, where he'll meet with NATO allies and G7 and European leaders about providing additional support for Ukraine. He will later travel to Warsaw to meet with the Polish president and visit with U.S. troops. Saki said she had two socially distanced meetings with Biden on Monday and that he's not considered a close contact by CDC guidance. Nonetheless, he has since taken a PCR test. 
which the White House says was negative. Franco, Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. The second trial connected to the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol has resulted in a split verdict. NPR's Tom Dreisbach has more on the case of the organizer of Cowboys for Trump. During the riot on January 6th, Coy Griffin joined the mob on the steps of the U.S. Capitol and recorded this. It's a great day for America. The people have shown that they've had enough. Griffin is a county commissioner from New Mexico and founder of the group Cowboys for Trump. Unlike many other defendants, he did not enter the building or attack police. Federal prosecutors brought two misdemeanor charges against Griffin, entering and remaining in a restricted area and disorderly or disruptive conduct. Griffin was found guilty of the first charge and not guilty of the second. After the trial, he told reporters he views January 6th as a badge of honor. His sentencing is set for June. Tom Dreisbach, NPR News. On Wall Street, the Dow recovered ground today, gaining 254 points, closing at 34,807. The Nasdaq up 270. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The U.S. Supreme Court will not hear the case of a former New England mobster. Yesterday, the court rejected an appeal for a new trial for from Francis Cadillac Frank Salemi. The 88-year-old is serving a life sentence for murdering a Boston nightclub owner nearly 30 years ago. In his initial trial, prosecutors argued that Salemi and another man killed Stephen DeSaro because they thought he would cooperate with the FBI. The defense argued for a new trial by claiming the judge gave the jury improper instructions about considering a motive in their deliberations. A 76-year-old man from Salem is scheduled to be arraigned tomorrow in a 50-year-old murder case. Arthur Massey has been indicted and arrested for the stabbing death of Natalie Shublin in her home in Bedford in 1971. Middlesex DA Marion Ryan says in 2019, her office formed a cold case unit and located a witness who knew Massey. She told the police that Mr. Massey habitually carried a knife and that he had bragged to her that he had previously killed someone with a knife. Ryan says information from the witness and pieces of evidence collected during the review of the case gave investigators enough information to charge Massey. A company that sells cryptocurrency will pay the state $1 million to settle claims that it violated securities rules. Secretary of State Bill Galvin says U.S. Data Mining Group sold unregistered securities and did not disclose that two men in the firm had previously been charged by federal regulators with fraud. Galvin says because cryptocurrency has become so popular, potential buyers should be cautious of who they're investing with. Before they give them any money, they should check with our securities division to make sure that these entities are licensed and registered if they're going to be involved in any way with them uh, to protect themselves and to protect their investment. Data Mining Group has agreed to pay the fine and offer investors their money back. 48 degrees now in the Boston area should stay clear overnight tonight as winds pick up. Some gusty winds tonight, temperatures falling to the low 30s. And for tomorrow, some bright skies early, then clouds thicken as the day goes on, just about 46 degrees tops. 48 degrees now in the Boston area at 506. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoom, used by half a million businesses, a platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video, enabling real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom, how the world connects.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Day two of confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson were marked by lots of measured questioning and one Senator, Lindsey Graham, losing his cool. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg joins us now. Hey, Nina. Hi there, Ari. All right, let's start with the beginning of the day, because for the first couple hours, the questioning was fairly subdued, right? Yes, but not boring. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Richard Durbin led off by giving Jackson a chance to answer some of the charges leveled against her by Republicans, charges that she sentenced people accused of child pornography to prison terms lower than recommended by prosecutors and by the federal guidelines. Jackson said that she had followed the recommendations of both prosecutors and the probation office, which compiles pre-sentence reports, and she stressed Her first concern is for the victims. When I look in the eyes of a defendant who is weeping because I'm giving him a significant sentence, what I say to him is, do you know that there is someone who has written to me and who has told me that she has developed agoraphobia? She cannot leave her house because she thinks that everyone she meets will have seen her will have seen her pictures on the internet. They're out there forever. That answer didn't satisfy Senator Ted Cruz, who, in addition to challenging her sentencing record, went after her service on the board of the Georgetown Day School, a private school in Washington that started in the 1940s to promote black and white kids going to school together at a time when the city schools were segregated. The curriculum... The curriculum, um, he said, is overflowing with critical race theory. Do you agree with this book that is being taught with kids that, that babies are racist? Senator, my understanding is that critical race theory as an academic theory is taught in law schools. And Georgetown Day School, just like the religious school that Justice Barrett was on the board of, is a private school a private primary and secondary school at which she said the board of directors does not control the curriculum. And there were more fireworks from Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. Tell us about what happened there. Well, Graham focused on Judge Jackson's representation of Guantanamo detainees when she was a public defender and a private lawyer. Did you support then the idea that indefinite detention of an enemy combatant is unlawful? Respectfully, Senator When you are an attorney and you have clients, you represent their positions before the court. If that brief had been accepted by the court, it would be impossible for us to fight this war. Judge Jackson refused to take the bait, repeatedly insisting that making a legal argument is not the same as embracing it personally. And she pointed to Chief Justice John Roberts, who at his confirmation hearing said essentially the same thing. And apparently frustrated Graham, his teeth actually bared, seemed to get angrier and angrier as he moved from topic to topic. Every group that wants to pack the court, that believes this court is a bunch of right-wing nuts that are going to destroy America, that consider the Constitution trash, all wanted you picked. And having said that, and a bit more, he stalked out of the room. What's this all about, Nina? Well, look, there's a great deal of this that's just posturing in politics on both sides. That doesn't mean that Democratic and Republican senators aren't very different in what kind of a judge they want to see on the Supreme Court. But 
Republicans are having trouble so far portraying this nominee as some sort of an outlier when she's received the highest rating of the American Bar Association, has the endorsement of a couple of dozen former GOP-appointed judges and conservative officeholders, in addition to the endorsement of the leading police union. That's NPR's Nina Totenberg. Thanks for your reporting. Thanks. In Ukraine, the capital city, Kyiv, came under shelling again today by Russian forces. Heavy fighting is also being reported in the port city of Mariupol. Ukrainian officials continue to try to negotiate what they're calling green corridors to allow people to evacuate out of Mariupol and other besieged areas. NPR's Jason Bobian joins us from Lviv. Hey, Jason. Hey, Juana. So what's the latest? What can you tell us about the fighting in Ukraine now? Well, again, today we saw several residential buildings in Kyiv getting hit by shelling. Um, Today it was in the northern suburb of Oblon in the capital. Further north from there, the city of Cherniv is cut off. It continues to get bombed. Uh, There's concern about a major humanitarian catastrophe there, as many parts of the city have been without electricity, food, and water for a week now. And there's street fighting continuing in the besieged port city of Mariupol, even as residents are desperately trying to get out of there. Uh, The ferocious Russian air assault on Mariupol has been so devastating that Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky today said that there's now nothing left of Mariupol. Wow. Um, So as I understand, there have been some conversations about negotiating safe passage for civilians out of a number of these areas. Has there been much progress on that front? There's been some progress, but it's been limited. Uh, Ukrainian officials almost every day are, are going on TV, going on the Internet and saying we're demanding the opening of humanitarian quarters for civilians. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Uh, We've been talking to people who fled here to the western part of Ukraine, and many of them say that just getting out of these towns that have been occupied by the Russians has been harrowing and often unpredictable. Sometimes they say there's a corridor and then no buses arrive, or they aren't able to actually pass through some of these checkpoints. And then when they do have to deal with the Russian troops to get out, the Russians are searching their belongings, their phones, they're pulling people off buses who've got messages on their phones that the Russian soldiers find offensive. And what can you tell us then about humanitarian aid efforts? How are they going? Well, for people who can get to places like Lviv or get across to Poland, there is a massive aid operation underway. Uh, You know, it may not be perfect, but it is functioning. However, Mercy Corps' Ukraine humanitarian response advisor Steve Gordon today said that the humanitarian system inside Ukraine is entirely broken down. And he's not the only one with that opinion. Um, In the areas of intense fighting, you're basically not seeing a coordinated international aid effort. Oftentimes, you're not seeing any aid getting in there at all. Basic supply chains have broken down, so there's not food going in there. And, you know, most of the support is coming from small local groups like churches and volunteers. And I've been putting together a report on how some people are saying that rather than this big aid operation with trucks, a more targeted cash-based assistance would be better. In downtown Lviv, what until a few weeks ago was a massive arts complex, is now a massive aid distribution hub. In the seats of a theater, women are sorting boxes of socks. In the basement, nursing students are divvying up medicines. There's an area where volunteers are taking pallets of dry food and making small bundles of groceries for displaced families. An art gallery on the second floor is packed with thousands of bags of donated clothes, mainly for children. This is a huge pile. It goes all the way to the ceiling. For children a lot. Nastya Stefanovich, a volunteer at the distribution center, says they're getting tons of secondhand shirts and pants for kids, but not enough shoes and sneakers for adults. 
The coordinator of the center, Tetyana Korstona, is even more blunt in saying that some people are just sending Ukrainians their worn-out clothes. Like, okay, I understand you want to help, but you have to respect us, to respect the people who lost everything. She says people are being incredibly generous and her center is able to provide assistance to roughly 500 families per day, but some of the donations are just junk and they have to throw them away. Some of the clothes they sent to a dog shelter to be used as bedding. The head of UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency in Ukraine, Karolina Lindholm-Billing, says a coalition of aid groups is ramping up a program to instead give cash directly to displaced Ukrainians. UNHCR has planned to disperse unconditional cash grants to at least 360,000 internally displaced persons. The program will start by distributing funds through the Ukrainian Postal Service. Families will be able to get roughly $75 per month per person at any branch of the post office for at least the next three months. Similar programs are being launched for refugees in Poland and Moldova that distribute the funds through ATM cards. Billing says logistically, it's much easier to transfer cash than to move truckloads of food, diapers, and clothes around a war zone. Cash is also often more dignified and useful, she says, for the recipients. It's better that people get the cash and they can buy you know, what kind of, if they want pasta or rice or, you know, canola oil or olive oil, you know, that that gives them rather than getting a package with half of the things they they want and need and and half that mm, they would not have picked on the shelves if they could choose. Currently, UNHCR and other aid groups are starting to enroll people in this cash distribution program, but disbursements haven't yet been made. In Poland, several pilot programs are already offering cash directly to refugees. There's been a growing recognition among humanitarian groups in recent years that cash aid makes a lot of sense in some disasters. Wojtek Wilk, the head of the Polish Center for International Aid, says this is one of them. For instance, Using cash assistance in a drought-affected area in Africa where there is no, no food wouldn't probably make any, any sense. But in Poland, there's plenty of food on the supermarket shelves. The banking system is functioning. The influx of cash also helps rather than undercuts local merchants. Wilk says the plan in Poland is to use the cash payments for a few months to get refugees settled, then to get them enrolled in the Polish social security system so they can work and get access to unemployment, housing, and other benefits. The biggest challenge for the cash aid program, Wilk says, is going to be to get enough international donors to fund it, especially given that there are now millions and millions of Ukrainians who could potentially need this assistance. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Lviv, Ukraine. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, Radio Sputnik, disseminating the Kremlin's point of view in the U.S., at least for now. On Wall Street, stocks ended the day on the plus side. The Dow rose three-quarters of a percent, 254 points, to close at 34,807. S&P pulled in even more, about one and a tenth percent, to finish at 45.12. The Nasdaq climbed about two percent to end the day at 14,109. It's 518. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Standard Company, helping to keep your home comfortable with plumbing, heating, cooling, and electrical solutions. Learn more at bostonstandardplumbing.com. And Walnut Hill School for the Arts, championing creativity, arts and academics for grades 9 to 12. Apply for 2022-23, walnuthillarts.org. The former chief medical officer at Cambridge-based biotech Biogen is about to head a gene therapy firm also in Cambridge. Al Sandrock will become CEO of Voyager Therapeutics. He's been advising the company on engineering a more precise delivery for gene therapy. He'll replace Michael Higgins at Biogen. Sandrock oversaw the development of treatments for multiple sclerosis and a controversial Alzheimer's drug. He recently abruptly retired last fall after 23 years with the company. Marketplace has business news coming up at 6.30. It's now 5.19. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's Dream State, Three imaginative ballets, including a world premiere set to the Rolling Stones. Live now through the 27th. BostonBallet.org. And Point 32 Health Companies, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare and Tufts Health Plan. A wide range of benefits to meet the needs of every member through employer, individual, and family coverage. Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org slash cars, and thanks. Clear, windy, and chilly overnight tonight, down around freezing. Tomorrow, look for bright skies, but not for long. Clouds thicken as the day progresses, up around 46 tops. 47 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help create a comprehensive plan for a client's full financial picture. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. As the Russian invasion of Ukraine rages on, a radio station outside Kansas City continues its daily broadcasts of Radio Sputnik. That is a Kremlin-funded news service which critics call Russian propaganda. Kayvon Mansuri of the Midwest Newsroom reports. Tune into AM radio stations across the country, and you'll likely hear a variety of political talk shows. But Liberty, Missouri's KCXL airs a program that's especially controversial. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens. Very needed for this American perspective. The program is called Fault Lines, and it's featured on the Russian state-funded Radio Sputnik, a news service out of Washington, D.C., producing news for Americans with a Russian tilt. One recent episode spent a full three hours painting Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky as the aggressor in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You are the one who's making a decision not to negotiate. You are the one who dragged your country into this conflict and continuously keeps your country in this conflict. Twice a day, Fault Lines and other radio Sputnik shows take over KCXL's airwaves for a three-hour block. In return, the radio station has earned more than $160,000 since 2020. Before getting that money from Radio Sputnik, owner Pete Chartel says he was struggling and considered shutting down the station. It it struck me as being something we could we could live with, especially if they would pay us and help keep the rest of the station on the air. The money comes from Rossiya Sagonia, a media arm of the Kremlin that critics say spreads Russian propaganda. 
The programming airs daily on KCXL and a handful of stations around the country. Since the invasion of Ukraine, Chartel has faced backlash. My wife and I really did discuss whether we should pull, pull this programming. If I did, we'd be doing exactly what we're the primary thing that we criticize, well, the old Soviet Union for sure and other communist regimes of doing where they don't allow free speech. And Chartel insists the programming on Radio Sputnik has value, offering a different perspective. Kevin Phillips has listened to KCXL for the last 20 years. He describes himself as a conspiracy researcher and says he gets a good amount of his news from Russian sources like Radio Sputnik. He says the Kremlin funding doesn't bother him at all. If you followed this Ukraine thing for the last 20 years, like I have, you're going to find way more truth on Russian paid for radio than you are on American radio. The National Association of Broadcasters recently took the unprecedented move of urging broadcasters to stop airing shows like Radio Sputnik. NAB official Rick Kaplan says broadcasts like Radio Sputnik are simply propaganda. You know, it's different than discourse, which is very important to have open all views on the table. There's a line between that and, you know, straight propaganda from a foreign, again, from a foreign government. But Pete Chartel argues his station is being attacked for offering a different perspective, even if it is funded by the Russian government. He pledges not to take the service off the air, even as irate callers use words like treason when they call to complain. For NPR News, I'm Kevon Mansori in St. Louis. The Midwest Newsroom is a collaboration among NPR and public radio stations in Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, and Nebraska. For decades, women have been fighting for equal rights. And 50 years ago today, women on the front lines won an important battle. The U.S. Senate overwhelmingly passed the Equal Rights Amendment, paving the way for it to become the 28th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. But that never happened. Here's NPR's Elizabeth Blair. The amendment is pretty simple. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Rosie Couture, a high school senior in Arlington, Virginia, couldn't believe that wasn't already in the Constitution. So first I was just shocked and then I was really angry. That's why she co-founded Generation Ratify. We were protesting outside of the Capitol, delivering letters, spamming voicemails. In 2020, Virginia ratified the ERA, in theory giving it enough states to become an amendment, though that's up for debate. Long before Couture was born, women were just as angry. Until 1974, banks made it tough for women to get credit cards. Until 1978, being pregnant could get you fired. You may not believe this, but uh, women were not allowed in the front door of the Harvard Faculty Club. Jane Mansbridge was a graduate student at Harvard in the early days of the women's movement. She's now a professor at the Kennedy School. You had to come in the back door and you had to be escorted by a man, even if you were a professor. Mansbridge was active in what she calls the radical women's movement. Even though the ERA had been passed by Congress to become federal law, it had to be ratified by 38 or three quarters of the states. And it went sailing through the different state legislatures with unanimous votes, one after the other after the other. Until, says Mansbridge, it got to the southern states. And Phyllis Schlafly came into the picture. Phyllis Schlafly was poised, politically savvy, and opposed to the Equal Rights Amendment. Here she is in 1973. Since the women are the ones who bear the babies and there's nothing we can do about that, our laws and customs then make it the financial obligation of the husband to provide the support. 
And this is exactly and precisely what we will lose if the Equal Rights Amendment is passed. And that wasn't all that would change, according to Schlafly and others against the ERA, as NPR's Koki Roberts explained in 1979. They worry about losing financial support, women in combat, co-ed bathrooms, homosexual marriage, and a host of other weird and threatening changes in the society. For a lot of people, those things don't sound all that weird anymore. All of those things did come to pass, even without an ERA, and this country, I think, is better for it. Ting Ting Chang is director of the Equal Rights Amendment Project at Columbia Law School. She says lots of people ask her, so why do we need the ERA? Her answer? current federal law is just not good enough. Jane Mansbridge agrees. It's the principle of having it in the Constitution, like other principles that are foundational to what we are as a people. But Kim Ford-Mazrui says ratification of the ERA could backfire. Ford-Mazrui is director of the Center for the Study of Race and Law at the University of Virginia. He says, look at how the Supreme Court has ruled when it comes to race. When interpreting the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, he says the court ignores historic and systemic racism. The Supreme Court's rule that race should generally be ignored has actually prevented policies that could help to reduce the racial gap. Ford Masrui says under the ERA, the Supreme Court could treat sex like it treats race. Prohibiting policies that are intentionally designed to open opportunities for women. The world has changed a lot over the last 50 years, but divisions persist. For some, the very definition of the word sex has evolved. But there is one thing women both for and against the ERA seem to agree on. Prior to the debate on ERA, there was this idea that women all fought alike. And Schlafly Corey is Phyllis Schlafly's daughter. And what the debate on ERA showed is that women have many different political opinions across the spectrum. And across ages. If Generation Ratifies Rosie Couture has anything to do with it. It's really important to have our voices in the movement to help light a fire, as well as bring to light issues that are really important to young people that get left out of the conversation sometimes. Whether the Equal Rights Amendment ever makes it to the Constitution is now up to the courts. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up, the controversy surrounding accusations of NFL quarterback Deshaun Watson around sexual assault and harassment accusations. Sports today, another one in the win column for the Red Sox in spring training play. Boston topped Tampa Bay 4-2. And Red Sox are going to be honoring the life of Red Sox Hall of Famer Jerry Remy this season by wearing a patch in his memory on their uniforms. It has the name Remy and number two. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Duke Science and Technology. Defying convention, embracing challenges, and racing toward solutions the world needs now. Because when collaboration leads, breakthroughs follow. Duke Science and Technology. Challenge accepted.duke.edu. And Back Bay Life Science Advisors, data-driven strategy and investment banking services for global life science companies. BBLSA.com. Michael O'Brien, Senior Vice President of Gilbane, a WBUR underwriter. Gilbane and WBUR share a common core value, integrity. 
And like WBUR, Gilbane is committed to supporting our communities where we live and work. We also know that the thought leaders and decision makers we're trying to reach turn to WBUR for their news and information. So we share in supporting an institution that's important to all of us. That's why we're proud to support WBUR. To learn more about underwriting on WBUR, go to WBUR.org sponsorship. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden is expected to announce new sanctions against Russia when he travels to Europe this week. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan declined to provide the specifics, but says the announcement on Thursday will be made in conjunction with NATO allies. One of the key elements of that announcement will focus not just on adding new sanctions, but on ensuring that there is joint effort to crack down on evasion, on sanctions busting, on any attempt by any country uh, to help Russia basically undermine, weaken, uh, or get around the sanctions. That is an important part of this next phase. Biden will meet with NATO allies in Belgium and Poland to discuss Russia's ongoing assault against Ukraine. He's also scheduled to address a European Council summit on Thursday in Brussels. The Republican governor of Utah has vetoed a bill that would have banned transgender students from competing in girls' youth sports. NPR's Kirk Sigler reports this comes after the governor of Indiana refused to sign a similar measure. Nearly a dozen Republican-led states have recently passed laws banning transgender females from competing in girls' sports, but in a letter to the bill's sponsors after he vetoed it, Utah Governor Spencer Cox called the issue one of the most divisive of our time, and he said Utah has a long history of trying to approach complicated issues fairly and with compromise, including, he said, LGBTQ protections, as well as immigration, criminal justice reform, and religious freedom. Now, Cox had said he would veto the transgender sports bill. Utah's 46-year-old governor has quickly developed a reputation as a moderate in this region, where Republican governors have turned far to the right. Kirk Sigler, NPR News. Stocks traded higher today on Wall Street. The Dow was up 254 points. The Nasdaq up 270. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Some coronavirus public health metrics in Massachusetts are heading in the wrong direction after several weeks of trending in the right direction. Today, the Department of Public Health reports 773 more people have tested positive. That's a 53 percent jump from one week ago. The weekly rate of tests coming back positive has increased to nearly 1.9 percent. That rate has been rising daily for about a week. Fifteen more people have died. The city manager in Worcester is stepping down. Edward Augustus Jr. announced today he'll leave the position at the end of May. He's held the post for eight years. Augustus is widely credited with helping drive the city's recent economic growth. Boston City Councilors today questioned Boston police about the department's use of a secret pot of money to purchase controversial surveillance equipment. The hearing follows a WBOR and ProPublica investigation that found police tapped civil asset forfeiture funds to buy the technology in 2019, WBOR's Shannon Dooling reports. Councilors focused their inquiry on how Boston police spent civil forfeiture dollars, funds comprised of cash and assets seized in connection with suspected crimes. Fatima Ahmed is executive director of the Muslim Justice League. In her testimony, Ahmad said the civil forfeiture system is ripe for abuse. People should be concerned about the fact that it is law enforcement seizing the assets and then law enforcement spending those assets. Boston police said they report some spending to the federal government, but counselors asked for additional documentation. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Shannon Dooling. A study by MIT and housing advocates finds that landlords in Massachusetts pursued more evictions against people of color than against whites in the year after the state's moratorium on pandemic evictions ended in the fall of 2020. Researchers found that in 16 cities, eviction rates were one and a half times higher in neighborhoods primarily home to people of color. A study author says racial disparities in evictions are a statewide problem. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, presenting Centro Presente. Over 100 million women in Central and Latin America live in poverty. Many flee after facing dangers of violence and abuse. Centro Presente Women's Center supports these women with education, guidance, advocacy, and more. Learn more at cpresente.org. On the windy side tonight, lows about 32 degrees. Tomorrow should reach the mid-40s with some sunshine early, yielding to clouds about 46 degrees, and then bring along the umbrella for Thursday. 48 degrees now in the Boston area. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all of their job openings. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Capital One, offering their new class of premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Tbilisi, Georgia. That sound you hear behind me is the beeping of people laying down their metro cards. They were at the top of a very long escalator down to the Liberty Square metro station. One of the reasons we're in Georgia is to hear what's on Georgians' minds as they track the war in Ukraine. We tap our cards to pay to, ride the escalator down to the platform, and start talking with people, hustling past on their daily commute. I stop Nikolos Kikvaze, he's a medical student here, and ask if he's following the war in Ukraine closely. He looks at me. Who isn't, he replies, which is fair enough, true around the world at this point, but really true here. Georgia shares a border with Russia and was attacked itself by Russia in 2008. That is very much on people's minds. No one helped us, like like Ukraine, okay? No one helped us. And no one helped us afterwards, the war. So, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have any um, hope that someone will help us. Uh, no one cares about the little country that borders with Russia. What you are hearing is a widely shared anxiety here that Russia isn't done attacking Georgia. Here's university student Anino Aksaze, who's also waiting to catch the train, speaking through our interpreter. Do you worry that Georgia is at risk? Yeah, Russia yeah, has invaded yeah. here already? Yeah. yeah. So I'm nervous. Yes, I'm uh, very nervous. This morning when I woke up, I was checking the news and I was wondering what was going to happen because I'm afraid that we will be the next ones. So I'm very worried about the situation. Now, people here do allow that Vladimir Putin appears to have his hands full in Ukraine, that maybe Georgia is safe for the moment. But bear in mind that after Russia attacked in 2008, it never fully left. Russia currently occupies some 20% of this country, which is not a big country to start with. 
Back up the escalators, out here on the streets of Tbilisi, thousands of people have been turning out for protests to stand in solidarity with Ukraine. We're headed next to meet the organizers, two founders of the shame movement. They welcome us to their office asking, want anything? Water, coffee, anti-Kremlin posters? They're not kidding. There are stacks of posters on a dining table. We walk over to look. So uh, Russia is an occupier, stand with Ukraine, there's uh, Putin's... You're looking uh, at this, red uh, red boot marks across yeah. Putin's face. Yeah. And then so. how about this one? This one is a newer one. Of course we know that Putin is a killer. We know it for long, but it's like we just printed it. It's a picture of Putin, his face, and with the big letters right across his nose that says killer, exclamation point. That's Salome Nikolashvili. She goes by Salome Barker. And another co-founder, Shota Demeloshvili. They are protesting the Kremlin. They're also protesting their own government, which hasn't signed on to sanctions against Russia, which said no when Ukraine's President Zelensky asked to address Georgia's parliament. Salome and Shota say Georgia should do way more to help Ukraine and stand up to Russia. On March 7th, protesters started throwing toilet paper at a government building here. More than half of Shame's founding members were arrested, including Shota. I was arrested and spent like five days uh, in the prison cell, which was um, uh, opened especially for us. And the only people there were activists. Salome says since then, it's been hard to figure out how to organize. She says they're not scared of being arrested, but a lot of people are, so they're staying home. And the government here, while it did just apply this month to join the EU, is mostly going out of its way not to antagonize Russia. I want to introduce you to one more Georgian, a high-profile one, accustomed to representing Georgia on the world stage. Arakli Alassania served as Georgia's defense minister and, before that, ambassador to the UN. He tells me it's great to see the world uniting behind Ukraine. Does it hang heavy, I ask, that the same didn't seem to happen when Russia attacked his country? Yes, and of course, in retrospect, you can judge whether world was ready for this kind of reaction. And unfortunately, if you go through the history, a lot of blood has to shed when people are starting realizing that, well, this is happening and we need to react. So in 2008, world was not ready. In 1993, world was rotinated because uh, 1993, we should explain this. The first, oh, I'm sorry. First Russian-Georgian uh, war that started in 1992 in Abkhazia when they uh, occupied it and ethnically cleansed Georgians from there. And uh, now Putin's overreaching and his uh, appetite to swallow whole post-Soviet uh, space back to resurrecting Soviet Union, he lost it. And it's evident. It's going to take time. I'm sure as a, uh, as a, with the military background, what I have, uh, it's not going to be easy. It's going to get worse until it get it better. Hmm. You mentioned your military background, and I just want to inject for people listening, I know you fought uh, yeah, in, in the 90s, and your father died fighting for Georgia. True. Yeah. A lot so, of Georgians died. Yeah. But your family has blood yes. in this fight against Russia. Yes, that's true. That's true. But honestly, on that, uh, I would say that we don't have this hatred toward Russians as a people. And uh, I think at the end, it will lead the way to really not only working, but I think neighborly relationship with Russia. I believe in Georgian-Russian relationship in the future, really? but it's going to be post-Putin period, definitely. 
neighborly relationship. Yes. That is not something I've heard from anybody else here yet. I'm a believer in that. And uh, there's a lot of arguments against it, but I do because in my dealings with the diplomats in the UN and other business people, I feel that younger generation Russians who are exposed to the West, who are exposed to the dealings with uh, the West, they're going to be easier for us to talk with. And they're going to understand more. And they're going to understand how much they're losing by being the country they have created. So I'm a believer in Georgian-Russian future relationship, but only after the post-Putin period will begin. Hmm. It's interesting because it seems like Georgia is caught. If you lean toward the West, apply to join the EU, try to join NATO, you risk antagonizing Russia. But if you lean Russia, then the West questions, are you actually serious about joining? Oh, actually, there's no, we don't have options here. The only way is to go westward and uh, be patient. We're speaking to you in Tbilisi. You split your time between Tbilisi and travel often to New York and to Washington. Um, What should Americans understand about Georgia in this moment? Oh, first of all, I think they should understand that Ukraine and Georgia now, it's inseparable. What's going to go down in Ukraine, it's going to matter for Georgia. And Georgia is not only Georgia. If Georgia goes down, then the whole Caucasus, I would say, and even hope for Central Asia to be at a certain point uh, free and have, be democratic will go down. And uh, standing up against Putin is actually the only thing at this point that will uh, forge this future for all of us. Irakli Alasani, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Former Defense Minister Irakli Alasania, one of many Georgians we are meeting here this week as we report from a country watching Russia's war against Ukraine very closely and wondering if they're next. And to All Things Considered from NPR News. When the NFL's Cleveland Browns picked up Deshaun Watson from the Houston Texans late last week, the Browns gained one of the best quarterbacks in the league. The team also picked up a lot of controversy. Watson hasn't played since 2020 because of sexual misconduct allegations. 22 women have civil cases against him, and we're going to be discussing those allegations at length. Earlier this month, a grand jury declined to indict Watson on criminal charges, making his return to the field possible. Lindsay Jones reports on the NFL for The Athletic. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hi, thanks for having me. Can you just briefly tell us about these 22 cases against Deshaun Watson? Sure. So 22 women have filed civil complaints um, alleging various forms of sexual misconduct um, against Deshaun Watson um, for various things that happened during massage appointments. These are all licensed massage therapists who Deshaun Watson reached out to um, allegedly over Instagram, over direct messages to come and perform work. They've um, accused him of various forms of sexual misconduct from groping, fondling um, to other sorts of unwanted sexual uh, contact. And knowing that, the Browns gave him a $230 million guaranteed contract, which is a record. Is it surprising to see a deal like that for a player facing those kinds of allegations? It was. The contract numbers were certainly stunning, as well as the way that the contract was structured, where the first year of that deal for 2022 has a low base salary of around a million dollars. So ultimately, if he is is suspended by the NFL, it won't be a huge financial penalty. So it it was stunning in terms of the, the draft compensation that they gave up to the Texans to acquire him and the amount of money that he was given 
Watson, given the uncertainties about his uh, availability to play later this year. Watson has not spoken publicly about this. Is there an argument to be made that he should be allowed to continue with his career until these claims are resolved, until they are proven? Sure, that's the that's the argument that, you know, he and his legal team have made that, you know, he is not facing any sort of criminal charges. There are only civil allegations at this point. Do you believe the NFL ultimately will take some kind of disciplinary action against him? There are multiple instances where the NFL and Commissioner Roger Goodell suspended players for uh, personal conduct violation, uh, absent criminal charges. It's just really hard to predict, though, exactly what um, the NFL is going to do. We know their investigation is open. They've interviewed at least 10 of the women, although it's been months, their lawyer has told us, since they've done any of these these interviews. Um, so it's, it seems to be a slow process, and they have yet to interview Deshaun Watson. So we don't know exactly how this is going to happen, but it is certainly possible that at some point in the 2022 season, Deshaun Watson would be suspended. What's the reaction been from fans in Cleveland? I think it's been very mixed. You know, I've heard directly from a number of fans, um, particularly female fans who are really frustrated, really unhappy, are ready to give up their their long fandom of the Browns because of this decision. Um, and then, you know, of course, there are fans who are starved to win and starved for a star quarterback who are, you know, willing to give the team the benefit of the doubt. So I think it's been very mixed reaction, um, but definitely some fans that are upset. We've talked about the team and about the NFL more broadly. Do you think this says something about the Me Too movement and the narrative of accountability and sensitivity? Was that overstated? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been really hard, right? I think as, as a woman who covers the NFL, it's been hard to kind of reconcile the things that I've read in these complaints and, you know, the reporting on that side with the contract numbers. Um, and it's been a reminder that, you know, the NFL isn't really any better equipped to handle crimes against women than society is in general. Lindsay Jones is a reporter with The Athletic covering the NFL. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, author Ann Tyler on her 24th novel that tracks one Baltimore family, the Garretts, across decades and generations. A note for afternoon commuters, there are lane closures on Route 16 westbound over the Mystic River in Medford today. The state's Department of Transportation is making emergency repairs on the bridge deck. The road is expected to fully reopen tomorrow morning at 5. Red Sox doubled up on Tampa Bay today in spring training 4-2. to two, And sunshine takes us into the evening hours. Then a clear night tonight falling to about freezing. Strong winds overnight tonight backing off a little bit tomorrow. Clouds moving in through the day tomorrow about 46 degrees for a high. 48 degrees now in the Boston area at 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tanglewood. A trip to Tanglewood is an escape to extraordinary. Enjoy music by BSO, Boston Pops, and more amidst the beauty of the Berkshire Hills. More at tanglewood.org. Clark, New England's Sub-Zero and Wolf showroom and test kitchen, where you can cook on Wolf appliances to make informed selections. More at clarkliving.com. And Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge. Powering possibilities, Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. I'm Rupa Shanoi, WBUR's Morning Edition host. You know, in a city like Boston that's changing so fast, experience matters. Reporters Deb Becker, Simone Rios, and the entire WBUR newsroom are out in the community to take you behind the headlines so you can start your day in the know. Join me weekdays for Morning Edition starting at 5 a.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
Let's make mornings better. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. In other parts of the program, you'll hear our co-host, Mary Louise Kelly, reporting from Tbilisi. But before she headed out, Mary Louise recorded this interview with author Ann Tyler. The majority of Ann Tyler's 24 books are about family. And the majority of Ann Tyler's 24 books are set in Baltimore. Now, if we were talking about any other writer, you would be excused for wondering if they might be stuck in a rut. But Tyler's gift is that each story, each character is distinct, even as she builds on themes from one book to the next. Tyler's new novel, French Braid, is set, you guessed it, in Baltimore, and it tracks one family, the Garretts, across decades and across generations. And Tyler, welcome to All Things Considered. Well, thank you. I got to start by asking, are, are you stuck in a rut? Or what is it about writing about families and Baltimore families that keeps bringing you back there over and over in your work? Well, I am stuck in a rut. I mean, <laughs> actually, <laughs> I say every time I start a new book, I say, well, this is going to be different. And it generally is not. I think I think that what I love when I'm writing about families is that you get to see these people grating along together that can't very easily leave each other. And mm -hmm. they have to show their true colors, like, as I always say, like people on the desert island or in a burning building where their real selves come out. Um, sometimes people do split up, families do split up, but generally it's a matter of of endurance, which is, I think, the, the quality in human beings that interests me the most. Yeah. It, describe this family, the Garretts of Baltimore. The dad is Robin, the mom is Mercy. They've got three kids, two daughters and a son. Um, what do we need to know about this family? Well, at the beginning, all we know about them is that although they have no great cataclysmic disruptions in their relationships with each other, they just aren't connected anymore. Oh. So much so that at the beginning, somebody who sees her cousin in the train station is not exactly sure that he is her cousin. She just thinks he looks sort of familiar. And the question is, how did that happen? What leads families to get to this stage? Yeah. Well, speaking of not being connected, I don't think I'm giving too much away if I share that the mom, Mercy, moves out of the family house when the last kid goes to college, but she never divorces her husband, Robin. The two sisters, Alice and Lily, they, they call each other, they talk to each other, but they don't actually seem to like each other that much. Right. I wondered, in a way, you're showing us how they are not connected, but you're also maybe, am I right in thinking, you're showing us that, that love can be expressed um, through the things we choose not to say, through the places we choose not to be? I think you're putting it very well. That's exactly the case, I think. For instance, the mother who basically is separated from the father as time goes on and leads more and more her own life, she knows the thing he's been scared of all his life is divorce. And she's very careful never, ever, ever to mention the word divorce. And everything is just fine as far as the outside world knows, even as far as the two of them know. Yeah. But to your point that that's the thing he's always been scared of, when she, when she tells him she needs some space, she's going to be sleeping somewhere else, he says, I couldn't bear it if you left me. And she says, I'm not going to leave you ever, I promise. Um, does she keep that promise? 
Well, in a way, yes. In a way, no. I I enjoyed writing about her. Sometimes I was so mad at her. Weirdly enough, I think the time I was maddest was just her general behavior toward a cat. The cat got me too. Can, can we just explain what happened with the cat? She inherits this cat. She inherits it. She doesn't want it, but she's being kind to somebody who desperately needs his cat taken care of. And um, as time goes on, the cat and she develop a relationship, but she always thinks he's going to go away finally. And when he doesn't, when it turns out, oh no, this cat is just going to have to stay with you. Well, the first thing I did when I was writing this was that I thought, all right, that's going to be one situation in which she does sort of stick with an obligation to another being. And every way I wrote it, it just didn't work. And finally, I had to say, well, I think she's going to get rid of that cat. And I just, I was just heartbroken about it. (laughs) But there you go. She does promise the cat's owner, yes, I'll take care of it. Don't worry at all. And then the second he leaves, she drives it up to the animal yes. shelter and dumps it in the crate in the parking lot. Um, and I I felt I'm not surprised to hear that you were mad as, as heck at her because somehow that betrayal felt more infuriating than, than leaving the husband. Yes, I don't know why that is. It's odd. <laughs> May I say something that strikes me as I listen to you speak? You're talking about your characters as though they're real people um, that you can't control. <laughs> like, oh, you, I can't. <laughs> you could make Mercy the mom nicer. She's you and yes. her. I know. I, I'm just trying to make you not blame me for what she did with the cat. But no, I I've always felt when I begin a book, it's so artificial, and I am I am so clumsy, and it's a manufactured lie I'm telling. And usually about a chapter and a half into it, I'm sort of pushing these people around on the page. And it's a matter of dialogue sometimes, but I'll think of a sentence one says, and then it just seems very natural that the other one would say such and such. Although, in fact, I didn't invent that. It's just that the characters suddenly just take on their lives. And then I do feel as if, oh, I'm getting to know so-and-so. I had no idea that she had such and such in her life. Yeah. You said that A Spool of Blue Thread was going to be your last novel. And that, if I'm not mistaken, came out seven years ago. And you've this is your fourth that you've written since then. What changed? Oh, yes, yes. Well, I always feel, I have to explain, that I didn't mean that I was never going to write again. What I was thinking is, I am going to just write this same novel forever. Because I'm happiest when I'm in the middle of a book. So at the time that I was saying this, I was writing a spool of blue thread and I thought, there's really no need for any more books from me, but I'm so happy writing this one that I will just endlessly revise it. I'll keep on going. I'll add generations, which is why, by the way, that book basically runs backwards. And what I didn't bargain on is that finally, I was just done. I I lost interest in an earlier generation that didn't have a lot of depth to it. And then, of course, what am I going to do with the rest of my life but write another novel? 
Well, Ann Tyler, I hope that you continue writing the same novel over and over so that we can continue <laughs> reading it. <laughs> well, thank you. That's a very nice wish. I, I really like that one. <laughs> well, I really loved this book. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Ann Tyler. She is the author most recently of French Braid. It's out today. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Rice University, where being bold is a virtue for its global community of scholars, pursuing unconventional wisdom in the heart of Houston to build a better future for all. Learn more at rice.edu. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments is a fiduciary, which means they always put clients' interests first. Fisher Investments, clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR, another one in the wind column for the Red Sox in spring training play, Boston top Tampa Bay 4-2. Sox will be honoring the life of Red Sox Hall of Famer Jerry Remy this season by wearing a patch in his memory. It will feature his name, Remy, and his number, which is two. Remy passed away in October after several battles with cancer. A clear, windy night tonight, dry and chilly, falling to about freezing. Tomorrow could see sunshine early, but gray skies develop during the day, just about 46 degrees for a high. In the Boston area now, 48 degrees at 559. I'm midday host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Russia's brutality in Ukraine continues and concern grows in another former Soviet state, Georgia. Georgians are watching with, I would say, a particular pain and perspective. They, 14 years ago, were invaded themselves by Russia. It's Tuesday, March 22nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, the U.S. Ambassador to Georgia talks about what's at stake as Russia is on the attack in Ukraine. A recent WBUR investigation found Boston police purchased surveillance equipment without city approval. Today, police defended the program as some counselors called for the secrecy to end. The work of our city should not be um, conducted behind closed doors or without the approval of the voices of the people. That story coming up. Marketplace starts at 6.30. It's now 6.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Russia is now using long-range shelling from naval ships as it tries to take the Ukrainian port city of Mariupol. NPR's Greg Myrie reports a senior U.S. defense official says the attacks signal a new approach to Russia's broader invasion. The U.S. official says Russia has as many as seven ships off the coast of Mariupol, and several began shelling the city in the past day. 
Russian ground troops are fighting inside the city, but are continuing to meet tough resistance from the Ukrainians. Russia's use of naval forces comes as it increases long-range artillery fire throughout Ukraine and also reflects Russia's difficulty of advancing on the ground. If Russia does take Mariupol, it would then control most of the territory stretching from the Donbass region in the east to Crimea in the south. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. The president of Ukraine today told the Italian parliament that nations could face famine as a result of Russia's invasion of the strongly agricultural nation. NPR's Silvio Poggioli has more. Zelensky began by telling Italy's MPs what he told Pope Francis. Our people have become the army, Zelensky said, when they saw the evil the enemy brings, the devastation it leaves behind, and how much bloodshed it wants to provoke. Ukraine is a big food exporter, and he warned about famine in some countries, such as Lebanon, Egypt and Yemen, because crops can't be sown under Russian artillery strikes. Zelensky said Russia sees Ukraine as the gates to Europe, though Ukraine is not an EU member. In reply, Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi vowed Italy won't look away from the, quote, barbaric Russian assault. He praised Ukraine's heroic resistance and assured Italy's support for Ukraine's speedy entry in the European Union. Silvio Poggioli, NPR News, Rome. New estimates from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention suggest that a more contagious subvariant of the Omicron variant now accounts for a majority of new coronavirus infections occurring in the United States. NPR's Rob Stein has details. The CDC estimates that this more contagious subvariant, called BA2, now accounts for more than a third of new infections nationally and more than half of cases in the Northeast. Helix, a genetics company analyzing the virus, for the CDC estimates the virus may account for as many as 70% of new infections in many parts of the country. Public health experts are watching this subvariant very closely because it has sparked new surges in parts of Asia and Europe, including the UK. What happens in Britain often foreshadows what happens in the U.S. Rob Stein, NPR News. On Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrial Average gained 254 points, closing at 34,807. The Nasdaq up to 70. This is NPR. A judge in Southern California has freed former child star Amanda Bynes of the conservatorship she was under since 2013. NPR's Mandalit Del Barca reports. Amanda Bynes became famous for starring in her own Nickelodeon show and in the 2010 comedy Easy A. But when she was 29 years old, she was placed under a conservatorship after a few erratic incidents, such as allegedly setting fire to a driveway. David Escibius is her attorney. There was a lot of behavior that was concerning to them, and it seemed like the right thing to do at the time. The following year, Bynes tweeted she was diagnosed as bipolar and was on medication and seeing a psychiatrist every week. Now she's 36, and a judge has ruled she no longer needs to be cared for by her mother. Escibia says her mother agreed, and that his client is excited to continue her studies at the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News. 
A storm system with heavy rain and thunderstorms that left a trail of destruction, injuries, and one death in parts of Texas and Oklahoma continued to move through the south today. Shelters were opened and school ended early in parts of Louisiana and Mississippi ahead of the weather. Suburbs of Austin, Texas, near Dallas-Fort Worth, northern Texas, and in southern Oklahoma are recovering after multiple tornadoes spun through. High winds uprooted trees in Ridgeland, Mississippi. A possible tornado was suspected from Texas. Texas to Mississippi, more than 90,000 homes and businesses lost power. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu wants to avoid having the state put Boston schools under receivership. WBUR's Matt Ledden reports the mayor expressed her opposition at a meeting today of the State Board of Elementary and Secondary Education. The prospect of receivership appears to be rising. Last week, the state said it will conduct a review of Boston Public Schools, or BPS. It's to address persistent challenges the state has identified, like inadequate special education services and questions about the accuracy of graduation data. Mayor Wu says the city is working on changes, and she's focused on bringing in a new superintendent. I'm so excited to work with the search committee and the school committee and the city council as we identify a long-lasting partner in leadership for BPS. It is with all this in mind that I firmly oppose receivership. Wu says the city is prepared to make unprecedented budget commitments to student achievement. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Matt Ludden. Efforts to suspend the state's gasoline tax are expected to get another look this week as gas prices remain near record highs. Earlier this month, the Massachusetts House rejected an effort to put collection of the tax on hold. Thursday, the Senate will consider an amendment to a spending bill that would temporarily lift the 24-cent-per-gallon tax until Labor Day. A brush fire on a military munitions training range in Central Mass is under control. Department of Conservation and Recreation Chief Fire Warden David Salino says the fire started yesterday afternoon in Devons. He says today firefighters set what are called backfires to contain it. You actually contain the fire by actually burning the fuel out in front of it. The reason that they did that, it's really an indirect tactic, and it was really important that we use that tactic here in Devons because of unexploded ordnance. The fire did not threaten any homes or buildings. Sure has been a nice day with clear skies continuing tonight. Chilly temperatures in the low 30s. Tomorrow's sunshine gives way to increasing clouds. Not as warm as today has been. Topping out in the mid-40s tomorrow. Thursday, highs around 48 with lots of rain. 48 degrees now in the Boston area at 608. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Tbilisi, Georgia, which has an uncomfortable number of things in common with Ukraine. Neither belongs to NATO, neither belongs to the EU. Both are former Soviet republics and both have a history of being invaded by Russia. So what are the stakes here in Georgia as war devastates Ukraine? And what's the U.S. role in helping assure that Georgia's history of Russian invasion is not repeated? Those are questions we're going to put to our next guest just behind these big gates. We have just pulled up to the U.S. Embassy here in Tbilisi. Let's go in and meet the ambassador. Inside, we get settled in the embassy's media room, where U.S. Ambassador to Georgia Kelly Degnan has been holding Zoom meetings during the pandemic, and we dive in. What are the stakes 
for Georgia. Um, and for Americans who don't know much about Georgia, what should, what should we know? Georgians are watching what's happening in Ukraine with, I would say, a particular pain and perspective. They, 14 years ago, were invaded themselves by Russia. Uh, there's a long history in Georgia of Russian invasions going back centuries, but this one in 2008 is still very raw for many Georgians today. This is also a moment of opportunity for Georgia. I think um, Sun Tzu said, out of chaos come opportunities. And here is an opportunity for this deeply polarized country to unite, to unite around the principles that and, and shared values that uh, Georgia has loved for um, for centuries. Let me pick up on something you just said. You just described this as a deeply polarized country. Um, and without getting too into the weeds of Georgian politics, um, there is at the moment this, I think fair to call it, strange situation where Georgia is threatening to sue its own president um, for her support for Ukraine. What's going on? President Zurabishvili has uh, represented this country very well. She has articulated the Georgian people's support for Ukrainians, for what they're going through, for sovereignty, for territorial integrity, both on the international scene. Um, she's flown we, to various European capitals to she, say, she, look, we Georgians, we stand with Europe and the world that's for right. Ukraine. And domestically, where I think there are a variety of feelings here, both the concern of becoming a target of Russian retaliation or aggression, as well as that fierce uh, commitment to freedom and watching the courage of the Ukrainian people. So why does the government, by which I mean the ruling party and the prime minister, why do they want to sue her? Here is, again, a moment where they can be coming together, where they need to be coming together. And that was the president's message in her speech on uh, March 14th to Parliament. Only Russia benefits when Georgians are divided. And that has been her strong message. She has earnestly represented this country, as I said, domestically and internationally, calling on all of the Georgian people and certainly their political leadership to come together. And I hope her me message will be heard. Yeah. I, I don't want to dwell on divisions, um, but I am trying to understand and trying to help our Americans listening understand what's going on here. There's this situation where the president and the prime minister are at odds over quite how firmly uh, Georgia should stand with Ukraine. Is that fair to say? Yes. Okay. I've also noticed another few things. Just, you know, in the in the few days that we have been here, we've been hearing about uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine wanting to address parliament here, and Georgia said no. Um, Georgian volunteers wanting to go help fight in Ukraine, help defend Ukraine, and their plane was not allowed to take off. What is informing? I know you don't speak for the, the prime minister or the ruling party here in Georgia, but how do you understand these divisions in society here? Georgia has spoken out quite forcefully in international fora, like the UN, OSCE, Council of Europe, uh, in support of, uh, of Ukraine, against the Russian aggression. So they are speaking out uh, and standing with the United States and the West uh, at this critical time. There's a balancing that I think we're seeing the government do, which is to uh, ensure that Georgia doesn't attract 
Russia's retaliation. It's their responsibility as the, the government, and they are representing the views of a portion of the population. So Georgia is taking the steps that it can, and we have been encouraging the government to look for the ways that Georgia can show its support for Ukraine and show its support for the fundamental security principles that are at stake. The balancing act that you described, is that in a nutshell that if Georgia stands too firmly with Ukraine or tilts too far toward the West, toward the EU, it will risk antagonizing Russia, risk putting itself in danger yet again? No one wants Georgia to be the next target. Uh, and I, I think um, what we are seeing is balancing. At the same time, this government put forward an early application for European Union membership. So by submitting that application, Georgia has started on uh, taking a very important step forward on its path toward European Union membership. There's a great deal of work to be done, a lot of reforms, um, a lot of hard work, but this is the moment, again, as President Zurabashvili said, this is the moment when the country can come together and really walk down that path toward European Atlantic integration together. To Zoom out from Georgia. Are you in contact with your colleague in Moscow, U.S. Ambassador John Sullivan? Uh, not regularly. Um, we are in contact with his, his team. Yeah. We are in contact with our colleagues in, uh, at, from Embassy Kiev. We're supporting. I'm asking because of these reports uh, that he has just been warned that the relationship is about to be severed. That's one of the reasons I'm not in regular contact. He's got his hands full with that managing that relationship, that very important relationship between the United States and Russia. Um, but we are supporting both Embassy Moscow and Embassy Kiev in important ways. For instance, we're taking on a lot of their consular affairs work to make sure that American citizens continue to get the support that they need um, overseas. Uh, we're looking for other ways that we can support those missions, um, uh, including supporting sometimes the Ukrainian colleagues that used to work at Embassy Kiev um, and that right now are relocated maybe to Tbilisi. How would it impact your work if the diplomatic relationship between Moscow and Washington were severed? Georgia doesn't have diplomatic relations with Russia, so there is uh, not formal relations here. Uh, so our, our connection is probably less so than in other countries. I think the main thing is continuing our work to help Georgia uh, find new partners and markets so that they can reduce their reliance on a country that has, over the centuries, never come through for Georgia at its moments of need. Georgians know Russians very well. Ambassador, thank you. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to have you here in Georgia. You're here in time for the 30th anniversary of our diplomatic relations. The United States is very, very proud of what we've been able to do together with Georgia over the last 20 years, and we're very excited about what's to come in the coming years. Well, happy anniversary. Thank, Thank you, you so for taking much. the time.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Stocks ended the day on the plus side. The Dow rose three-quarters of a percent, 254 points, to close at 34,807. S&P pulled in even more, about one and a tenth percent, to finish at 45.12. Nasdaq climbed about two percent to end the day at 14,109. A Bostonian is now leading the largest workers' union in America. Sean O'Brien was sworn in today as general president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. He previously led Teamsters' Local 25 in Charlestown. O'Brien says his priorities include negotiating a strong contract with UPS and leading efforts to organize employees at Amazon. More business news coming up at 6.30 on Marketplace. It's now 6.17. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast, working to build and evolve a reliable network to keep customers connected. Learn more at comcast.com network. And the Harvard Art Museums, presenting cutting-edge works by a diverse array of artists in the exhibition Prints from the Brandywine Workshop. Tickets at harvardartmuseums.org. This is Nina Totenberg. If there's one thing you can't argue with, it's how important this station is, and your old car can make it even better. Turn your car into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. In spring training play today, Boston topped Tampa Bay 4-2. to two. A clear night tonight, windy, dry, chilly, falling to about freezing. Tomorrow we could see some sunshine early, but gray skies develop during the day, about 46 for high. Thursday, forget the sunshine, prepare for rain. The National Weather Service says there's a 100% chance of rain Thursday. 48 degrees now in Boston under sunny skies. This is WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Watching UN Security Council meetings on Ukraine can be jarring. As countries raise alarms about Russia's bombardment of Ukraine, Russia's ambassador dismisses every allegation as fake news. Russia is a permanent Security Council member, so it's hard to hold it to account there, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. The U.S. ambassador to the United Nations puts it bluntly. Linda Thomas-Greenfield told reporters on her way into one recent meeting that Russia is using its position on the Security Council to launder lies. And these lies are designed for one purpose and one purpose alone, deflect responsibility for Russia's war of choice and the humanitarian catastrophe it has caused. Russia has been trying to head off a Security Council resolution demanding humanitarian access to Ukraine by proposing its own draft. Albania's ambassador said Russia should get into the Guinness Book of World Records for hypocrisy. Russia has also made claims denied by U.N. officials about biological weapons programs in Ukraine. Thomas Greenfield calls that a false flag. Russia has repeatedly, repeatedly accused other countries of the very violations it plans to perpetrate. The Security Council is supposed to be the guardian of international peace and security, says Lou Charbonneau of Human Rights Watch. But whenever it involves the permanent members, it's basically hamstrung. Throughout the Cold War, he says, the Security Council was deadlocked because the superpowers could veto anything. This moment may be the same. But Charbonneau says U.N. aid agencies are helping Ukrainians uprooted by war, and U.N. human rights officials are gathering evidence of war crimes. So hopefully there will eventually be proper accountability, but it's not going to come from the U.N. Security Council. The U.N. Security Council provide some good drama, a bit of nasty back and forth, but uh, it's not the substance. The substance is going to come from elsewhere. 
Eventually, the U.N. Security Council could play a role if Russia and Ukraine reach a negotiated settlement, says Richard Gowan of the International Crisis Group. Then it may be useful to have the council put its stamp on the agreement. And you can imagine a situation where you have a ceasefire in Ukraine or a disengagement of forces, and you need some sort of UN peace observer mission to confirm that Russia is pulling back. Speaking via Skype, Gowan says the UN will also have to deal with the global consequences of this war. Ukraine and Russia supply much of the world's wheat, and the developing world is worried about that. The UN's job is partially to help weak states navigate what is going to be a major global economic crisis just after the crisis that was sparked by COVID. And so the UN's biggest contribution here may be at the global scale rather than actually mediating between Russia and Ukraine. For now, the UN Security Council continues to function in other areas. It recently renewed the mandate for the UN mission for Afghanistan, for instance. But as the war in Ukraine drags on, Gowan says, it may be harder for Security Council diplomats to work together. And that could mean more fallout for the rest of the world. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Ohio's Republican Senate primary is shaping up as a fight between candidates touting their pro-Donald Trump credentials. In recent days, the race for the open seat has gained in both intensity and animosity. NPR's Don Gagne reports. Watch the local news or March Madness basketball in Ohio these days, and you're also going to get lots of TV ads with U.S. Senate candidates and one other recurring character, Donald J. Trump. He's everywhere, even as he's endorsed no one. Pro-God, pro-gun, pro-Trump. That's from former state treasurer Josh Mandel. This one from former state GOP chair Jane Timken. There are pretenders in the Senate race. Jane Timken is the real Trump conservative. And from investment banker Mike Gibbons, who has outspent his opponents on ads. Trump and Gibbons are businessmen with a backbone. Trump saved our economy before. Gibbons knows how to do it again. The primary campaign right now is in the middle of a 10-day stretch with three debates. Friday was the first in suburban Columbus. Five candidates sat side by side on stage. Timken made her opening pitch. As most parents know, when something threatens your children, you fight. And I'm a mom on a mission, ready to take our country back. Josh Mandel used his opening remarks to liken himself to Trump as tough on China. He was teeing up an attack on the candidate to his right, businessman Mike Gibbons. And people like Mike Gibbons, who had all these companies here in America and then made money selling them to China. Mandel chose his target for one reason. Latest polls put Gibbons ahead. The first question of the debate was about Ukraine. All blame President Biden for being weak and giving Putin an opportunity to invade. Most supported military and financial aid of some kind, but candidate J.D. Vance, author of the book Hillbilly Elegy, stood out from the pack with this. What happened over there is very sad, but ladies and gentlemen, it cannot be said enough. We have got our own problems. It was during discussion of Ukraine that Mandel resumed his attack on Gibbon's business history, leading to an angry exchange that bordered on the physical. You've never been in the I private sector it. in your entire All right, I've worked, sir. Josh. Squat. Josh. Two tours in Iraq. Don't tell me I haven't worked. Mandel, who is 44, jumped up and went nose to nose, chest to chest with the 69-year-old Gibbons. 
it was both tense and awkward. Two tours in Iraq, don't tell me I haven't worked. You back off. The moment went viral. Now to last night and another debate. The moderator opened by asking Mandel and Gibbons about their earlier clash. Neither expressed regrets. The evening proceeded calmly this time. At one point, the five candidates were asked for a show of hands. The topic was the 2020 election. Do you think that for the betterment of the Republican Party, it's time for Donald Trump to stop talking about the 2020 election and move on? Only one candidate raised his hand, State Senator Matt Dolan. In Ohio, we have very secure elections. There has been two audits done and it showed there are no problems. Dolan is currently in single digits in polls. At the first of these debates, I met Dolan supporter Gordon Phillips, a retired career Air Force veteran. He's a loyal Republican, but January 6th was a turning point for him. He says the party does need to move beyond Trump. But I'm looking for a man who can, with integrity, who can stand up and speak truth and uh, be responsible and accountable for the decisions he makes. And were you a Trump voter? I was a Trump voter twice. Still, Phillips is in a small minority within the GOP. Far more common are voters like Kathy Deal, who works at a local church. She's undecided in the Senate race and wishes Trump would weigh in. Trump had not given an endorsement. No, yet. he's not. That would that would definitely seal it for sure. If he were in to yes, endorse, it would seal it for um, you. Even with polls showing Mike Gibbons in the lead, more than a third of GOP voters are still undecided. The primary is May 3rd, but that could be delayed due to a legal battle over redistricting. Whoever gets the Republican nomination will likely be the favorite in November in a state Trump won twice easily. Don Gagne, NPR News. This is NPR News. Today, Boston City Councilors peppered Boston police officials with questions about the police department's $627,000 purchase of controversial surveillance equipment. Boston police tapped a hidden pot of money to buy the technology. WBUR's Shannon Dooling has more. Today's hearing focused on Boston Police's 2019 purchase of a cell site simulator, also known as a Stingray. The device the size of a suitcase tracks real-time cell phone use and location. Civil rights advocates say the warrantless use of the technology violates privacy laws. Counselor Julia Mejia demanded a hearing after she and other counselors said they weren't aware of the purchase until notified by WBUR. The work of our city should not be conducted behind closed doors or without the approval of the voices of the people. This era of secrecy has to end. An investigation by WBUR and ProPublica revealed Boston police used the proceeds of civil asset forfeiture to buy the cell site simulator. This money comes from cash seized in connection with suspected crimes, and it's spent largely at the discretion of police chiefs. Boston Police Superintendent Felipe Colon told counselors the device has saved lives, including suicidal individuals and victims of human trafficking. We do have strict policies, strict guidelines as to when we deploy this technology. Through some limited research, I've seen other cities and it's used far more than we than we do. However, BPD previously told WBUR that there were no guidelines for using the cell site simulator. 
When counselors asked about policies for deleting identifying cell phone information collected from bystanders who aren't being targeted during an investigation, Cologne admitted the department had none. He said they will formulate a policy. The committee also asked BPD for more data on forfeiture spending. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Shannon Dooling. And this note, WBUR's investigative team will discuss its investigation into Boston police spending on surveillance technology during an event on April 5th. It'll be in person at WBUR City Space and also online. To register for free tickets, go to the City Space page of WBUR.org. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Be inspired to simply be with the works of Zanelle Maholi on view through May 8th. More at GardnerMuseum.org. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. More than 3.5 million people have fled Ukraine since the war started. More than 10,000 of them have been welcomed by Ireland. They see Ukrainians as fellow Europeans, as people who deserve our solidarity and support, and they want to do something to help them. Finding safety in Ireland, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition, 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is WBUR on the windy side overnight tonight. Lows about 32. Tomorrow should reach the mid-40s with some sunshine early, yielding to clouds. Highs about 46. Then bring along the umbrella for Thursday. 48 degrees now in Boston at 630.